Welcome back to Sashimi. In this episode, I interviewed Diamond Inabi, a vice president at Software Equity Group, the investment bank specifically focused on software and SaaS. We discussed SaaS valuations and how they have changed over the past several years, the main drivers of valuation multiples, and recent market trends. Diamond also shared her advice with founders who plan to sell their companies. But first, let me tell you about the sponsor of this season of Sashimi, Siligo. Siligo is a leading enterprise-wide integration platform as a service for mid-market companies. Named the G2 Best Software for 2021, Siligo enables breakaway growth, controlled cost management, and superior customer experiences by ensuring that every process at any level of the organization can be automated in the most optimal way. For more information, visit Saligo.com or just click the link in the description. And now, back to my interview with Diamond Inabi. Diamond, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Before we start, maybe you could say a few words about your background and perhaps introduce Software Equity Group. Yeah, definitely. So I'll start with Software Equity Group. We are a M&A advisory firm based out of San Diego, California, and we focus exclusively on software and SaaS companies. And unlike many investment banks, we aren't a volume shop, and we focus very closely on high-quality and industry-leading businesses. And we advise both bootstrapped and financially backed entrepreneurs with the goal of really transforming their lives and empowering them to do good in their own communities. As it relates to myself, I've been with SEG for nearly a decade now, and I spread my time pretty evenly across product categories. So everything from real estate to ESG to ERP and supply chain and more. I, I think the question that I was always curious about is uh, SaaS companies were historically valued on the multiple of ARR or revenue. Whereas you look at other deals, they are valued at multiple of EBITDA, or you look at the financial theory, it's a present value of future cash flow. Is it an inherent assumption that down the road, this company is going to turn EBITDA, I don't know, positive or expand EBITDA margin? Or what's the idea here? It's a good question. So in theory, all businesses, including SaaS companies, are inherently valued on the current value of FCF. But for SaaS companies, it really depends on the life cycle of the business and where they are in that life cycle, as well as the maturity of that business. So that's ultimately going to determine what metric to use for valuation. So for SaaS companies that are in their early stages or in a growth phase, they are making a number of upfront investments to fuel growth, which will directly impact their EBITDA margins. So in that case, EBITDA wouldn't necessarily be a good proxy for future earnings. On the other hand, if the SaaS company is more mature or they're just more focused on profitability, EBITDA may be a better metric to base valuation. And there isn't a standardized measure to define success for a SaaS company because there is that delicate balance between doing what it takes to grow and aiming towards profitability. And given this, we see a lot of investors really focusing on this metric called the rule of 40, which takes into account both the growth of a business as well as the profit margins. And if we're looking at a SaaS business, those two numbers together should add up to 40% of more. So it's a pretty good rule of thumb for assessing SaaS businesses. And we have a lot of this information on our website with blogs if anybody wants to take a look at it. But all that being said, we do like ARR multiples because it's a simple valuation that's tied to revenue uh, and it's not easily manipulated, whereas EBITDA and adjusted EBITDA mm -hmm. sometimes can be, but it's really focusing on recurring revenue and that's really valuable for people who are assessing SaaS businesses. 
I'm curious, what are the main drivers of SaaS valuations? Maybe obviously yeah. growth of top line, but what, what else? Yeah, it's really interesting that you asked that because we just surveyed a group of the top private equity investors in the software space to get a pulse on just that and get a pulse on the current market conditions in the MA market, as well as the predictions for the remainder of 2022. And again, like I mentioned, valuation is ultimately going to be determined on the maturity of the business and where they are in that growth cycle. But we take into account really two factors. Number one is going to be the quantitative side, which are going to be things like you mentioned. So growth rate, gross margins, EBITDA. On the other side, it's going to be qualitative factors. So think of things like market attractiveness, total addressable market, things that are, aren't as hard. And these factors can have a varied degree of importance depending on the type of buyer. But all else being equal, on the quantitative side, our survey determined that the main drivers were Number one, gross retention, which takes into account customer churn as well as customer existing customer downgrades. And number two, revenue growth. And number three, gross margin. And this has changed over the last few years where investors were previously putting a lot of value on growth and EBITDA over gross margins and gross retention. But given the uncertainty of the macroeconomic environment, people are focusing more on things like gross retention. And it's a really good metric and a good proxy for risk because it speaks directly to you know, the mission criticality of the company and also you know, how competitive they are in the market and if they're going to be durable in you know, uncertain market conditions. I've heard about uh, net retention replacing gross retention. How do you answer that? Is it the case or not necessarily? Net retention is definitely taken into account, but gross retention is has been seen as a better metric to assess risk because with net retention, you know, it could be inflated because a company has a really strong sales and marketing team and they're you know, filling a leaky boat to say with expansions with existing customers, whereas that's not really the case when you look at, you know, solely churn and solely downsells within the existing customer base. You mentioned about uh, mission critical. How many com SaaS companies actually can be called mission critical? Because I see that a lot of times on every deck, but mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical. What's your definition of mission critical and how can I assess mission criticality based on uh, retention? It's a great question. And it, it is a really good sales term to use. For a mission critical business, you know, you can say it's a need to have rather than a, a want to have. And ultimately, you can determine the mission criticality of it by looking at a company's numbers. So looking at the gross retention, looking at you know, how well they're growing relative to their unit economics and their sales team, and also looking at their win rates as it relates to, you know, their competitors and how they're going to market. Does NPS come into the picture at all? You know, we, it's a strong metric and we do see customers, you know, doing uh, NPS surveys, but it wasn't something that has come up pretty frequently in our assessment of the market and when we speak to the buyers in the market as well. So SaaS market has changed quite a bit over the last, let's say, five years. You think you can walk me through the valuation trend, maybe multiples? What have you observed, let's say, over the five years? 
Surprisingly, valuation trends have been pretty consistent from 2017 to year-to-date 2022. To speak to direct numbers, the median public market multiple for the first half of this year was around 8.5x, which is on par with the medians from 2017 to 2020. And there was a bit of a surge in late 2020 and in early 2021 because there was a lot of companies trying to go to market and trying to sell their businesses to avoid capital gains taxes. And when that concern was lifted, they, you know, some of those deals were pushed into 2021. Um, so we saw a little bit of a surge there and it's kind of regulating back to where it was. Didn't COVID increase the valuation of multiple? Maybe it was just in the news of the high flying companies, mm-hmm. but it was my observation. But what's your take on that? I agree with that. So the market did put greater value on those solutions that are considered mission critical or that were enabling growth during the pandemic. So think of companies like Zoom, like DocuSign and Shopify that were really pushing the industry and the general market forward during a pandemic and in those uncertain times. Did you anticipate that eventually they will come down or you looked at that as a new normal? It was unprecedented. So it was, it's kind of hard to tell, but I can tell you that, you know, this year we, we haven't seen a ton of slowdown. We have seen a little bit of slowdown um, in, in April and May, but the deal volume has picked up to the highest historical levels we've seen as of June. And valuation, you're saying they are? And valuations have, are back to where they were prior to that surge in 2020 and 2021. Interesting. So when you engage a client and you assign a value on this business, how important are the comps? And, or do you primarily use public comps or private or combination of two? So we use private comps and what we've seen in the market and what our deals have traded at in the past. But we do also take into account those those quantitative and those qualitative factors that I mentioned earlier. And you know, we'll take all of those and you know, measure it based on how important each one is. And it goes back to what the buyers are looking at. So we're going to be looking at gross retention. We're going to be looking at, you know, net retention and what's considered standard for a buyer that's looking at, you know, a SaaS business in the private markets. Is there a discount to private companies relative to public or vice versa? Yeah. So speaking directly to theory, there's typically that 30% liquidity discount applied to private companies versus public companies because of the value that investors put on liquidity. Another reason is that you know, public companies typically have better quality and more regulated financials, which is highly valued by investors and buyers. Um, and then number three, that's kind of encapsulating both of those things is risk and you know, public companies tend to have a lo- lower risk profile than private companies, just given that they are larger and they're highly anal- analyzed on a consistent basis. There are obviously cloud-native software companies, and there are on- on-prem software companies that are transitioning to cloud because apparently there are higher multiple assigned to them, right? What type of multiples would you assign to each of these companies? That's a good question. So... I want to start with the difference between the delivery model and a pricing model. So number one with the delivery model, which is 
you know, all cloud on-premise or transitioning, it's going to be different than your delivery model, which might be, you know, subscription and, you know, mm-hmm. a typical maintenance and support pricing model. So generally speaking, SaaS businesses tend to be on a subscription basis. And generally speaking, on-premise has those, you know, large upfront costs and the maintenance and support fees. So if we're speaking to pricing models, a customer on a subscription model is typically more valuable than those that are on a maintenance and support model because it's longer. If you're thinking annuity, they're paying more in the long term. So of course, the pricing models can differ between the delivery models, but in general, that's how we see it. And that's why those all cloud SaaS companies tend to have higher valuations is because of that really nice subscription recurring pricing model. I've seen a combination of two is a tor- I think it's called term license. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's it's still on-prem, but it has a billion of, of sauce. Is it fair assessment of it? It is. And we see that too, which is why I like to make that differentiation because we've seen you know, on-premise customers have a subscription model and that helps with valuation. If we're, if we're seeing a business that does have, you know, that typical really high upfront fee and of the smaller maintenance support fees going forward, that's when, you know, those valuations tend to be discounted. And you've mentioned earlier when we spoke prior to the podcast that June has been the busiest month for you for some time. What caused this deal flow? Yeah. So we feel as though you know the uncertain market conditions of the macroeconomic world as well as people you know thinking they should pull back a little bit after the surge that we saw in Q4 and early Q1 this year you know realizing that SaaS companies are high quality SaaS companies are going to be mission critical and durable and likely withstand any kind of macro event or any market uncertainty. And so the deal volume has picked up again because we've realized and the market has realized that, you know, a lot of these product categories and these these companies are going to be successful going forward. And we've seen a, an, an uptick in deals for, for June of this year. Who are the primary buyers and sellers of this uh, businesses? So for buyers, are this uh, PE funds or uh, strategics? And for sellers, are this bootstrapped companies or sponsor-backed? We categorize buyers in four different categories. So number one, we have your pure play private equity party. Number two, we have your pure play public strategic. Number three, you have your pure play private strategic. And then number four, you have your private equity backed strategic, which is a relatively new group that has been extremely competitive in deals recently. And on the seller side, we see everything. We have our group specifically, we do do a lot of work with bootstrapped entrepreneurs, but we do do work with, you know, VC backed and private equity backed companies as well. And then in the macro world, you're seeing a mix of all of them. So I would say about 60% 60% of deals today in the data that we, we track for the overall market is going to be private equity driven deals. I think you said you work with uh, bootstrapped a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you build the relationship over some time. Mm-hmm. What do you tell them now? It's time to sell or you tell them to hold? What's your recommendation to the sellers? We've seen 
in our personal market and the deals that we've done this year, some of the highest valuations that we've seen. And it really does come down to where that business is in its maturity cycle and you know what they're bringing to market. And we, we aren't telling folks to hold because we haven't seen a slowdown in our deals and we haven't seen a slowdown in the multiples that we've seen in the market. And so we're still extremely confident in the private markets for the remainder of this year. Got it. And uh, you mentioned already that uh, the valuation depends on the life cycle of the company, but it also depends on the category, right? Mm-hmm. How would you rate different categories in terms of the more, most expensive or in terms of multiples, everything else being the and least expensive? That's a great question. So if we, again, just going directly to the data that we track sure, in yeah. our quarterly reports, the we all the product categories saw a dip in valuations a bit from last year to this year. But the ones that saw the most modest decline were those that, you know, were more durable. So think of uh, categories like security or ERP and supply chain, the really mm-hmm. solid mission critical type product categories were the ones that stayed consistent. Whereas, you know, more of those want to haves rather than need to haves, we saw a pretty significant decline. So think of, you know, communications, collaboration, DevOps, IT Mm -hmm. management, we saw a pretty significant dip in those categories. So for founders or entrepreneurs who plan to sell their companies, and I don't know if you're already working with them, or maybe they hear, listen to this podcast, reach out to you, what do you recommend them to do before they sell? What do they need to put together and maybe fix in their companies before they even start conversation? Mm-hmm. So we are extremely data focused. Everything is driven off of the data. So first and foremost, I would say start with your data and tracking you know, your customer and your financial data because it's pretty much impossible to understand the inner workings of the business and what you can do to improve without understanding that. And to get a little more specific, I think the most important file to be tracking is going to be the monthly recurring revenues by customer, otherwise known as an MRR file, for at least the last three years. And with this data, you can typically track your retention, your growth rates, and any opportunity for upsell within the existing customer base. And as we previously discussed and in that survey that we just did, the gross retention is one of the most important factors for buyers right now. So being able to understand that and where some deficiencies might be through the data is really going to help when you're starting to think about your exit strategy. Also understanding you know, your gross margins and ensuring you're calculating your gross profit margins correctly because it's a little nuanced with SaaS and software businesses is really important. And you know, this might sound a little self-serving, but having proper planning is really the way to optimize yourself for a sale or a liquidity event. And we'd recommend leaning on a firm like SEG to provide that coaching months and sometimes even years in advance. And that way you can mitigate your risks and you know get advice from experts with people that have a pulse on the market, build value, and have the smoothest process when you get to that period. And also, you know, if you're getting any kind of unsolicited PE or strategic buyer interest, you will be properly prepared when that time comes. And you mentioned something that calculation of gross margin because it's nuanced. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that a little? Yeah. And we have all of this information on our website as well. But you know, many people 
don't track their gross profit margins correctly because they fail to include some of the metrics that you know wouldn't be applicable to a non-SaaS business. So think of you know hosting costs or think of uh, any expense that it takes to upkeep the software, any, you know, any external IT, just these these simple things that you know, if you're just assessing a non-SaaS business, would not be taken into account, where it would have to be taken into account for a SaaS business. What about customer success? Customer success, we look at it as more customer support. So if you know anything to upkeep the software, and it's hitting the customers and it's customer facing, that's what we would include in gross margins. Got it. Damon, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.